0: Thank you.
1: the Stars of the Culture Wars. I'm your host, Alexandra Marshall, and this week we're joined by Lyle Shelton. Lyle, it's wonderful to have you here on Curtain Call today.
0: It's a great privilege, Ellie. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, I know you, of course, as the star or one of the stars of The Good Source, where you do a range of political commentary on social and political issues. But I consulted Wikipedia and found out that you've actually done other things. Um, So you were a rural journalist, you were a lobbyist for 10 years with the Australian Christian Lobby, you're a social campaigner during the same-sex marriage in which you argued for the No campaign, you're federal communications director for the Australian Conservatives and author of, and this is one of my favourites, I kid you not, Notes from 20 Years in the Trenches of the Culture Wars and, of course, the recently announced successor to Fred Niles, which will leave you leading the Christian Democratic Party. So, my obvious question is, how on earth did you come to live your life in the thick of the culture wars? Uh,
0: I must be a sucker for punishment, uh, Ellie. Um, I'm actually quite surprised that Wikipedia seems to be reasonably accurate. You're obviously just reading the nice things uh, on Wikipedia about me. I I hate to think what else is there. But um, look, I've been passionate about, uh, I guess, the culture war issue since I was a teenager, to be honest. And I guess studying journalism, uh, at university, uh, whilst I was in rural journalism, I was covering rural industry politics. So always had a fascination with politics and, uh, one thing just, uh, kept leading to another.
1: Well, to be fair on Wikipedia, they consider your talking points to be a negative. So while they're accurately de- documenting your career, they think they're doing a bad job, but it's actually pretty good, pretty straightforward. Uh Throughout your videos and your articles, which I had a little read of earlier, you make it clear that Australia is embroiled in the culture wars. But I have noticed that conservative politics and a range of our conservative parties are apprehensive to engage in these culture wars. And so I'm wondering, is this because they lack the ability to discuss the culture wars, that they maybe don't believe that they're important, or worst of all, that perhaps our conservative parties actually agree with the rise of Marxism in Australia?
0: Wow. Um, It's probably a combination of all three, I think, Ellie. I think the biggest problem is uh, a lot of Australians a lot of conservative-leaning people are in denial. Uh, Life has been generally pretty good in this country, and and it it is good. Uh, We're reasonably prosperous. Most people are just getting on with their lives and don't want to know about um, cancel culture or wokeism or all this sort of thing. They see it perhaps as a, a bit of an irritant off to the side, but the reality is it's reaching out and touching all of our lives. And um, I guess one of my passions is to try and wake people up to the fact that there, there is a war going on, freedom of speech, um, freedom of religion, which is very important to people like myself or people of faith, uh, is under pressure like never before. And I think uh, we've got to sound the alarm. We've got to engage in the battle for ideas. And I think that's um, that's a big part of what, uh, I've been seeking to try and do um, over what now has been 20 years. Uh, time flies.
1: <laughs> well, I am a little bit concerned, having listened to some of the rhetoric coming out of both sides of politics, that perhaps our political leaders are not as historically literate as their former heroes and our previous politicians. Would you say that's a fair assumption, that perhaps they are not educated in the history of politics and so are not recognising the danger of rising Marxism?
0: Absolutely. And, you know, I should have in response to your earlier question, I do think that there is an element uh, of the conservative side of politics, um, A, that is illiterate of history, but B, that um, is perhaps complicit with cultural Marxism, Um, whether they know it as that philosophy by name, uh, they're they're complicit in, in just going with the flow. But you've only got to read the speeches of the founder of the Liberal Party, Sir Robert Menzies, to realise that he understood where the battle lines were drawn uh, in his day, in the post-war years. Uh, Clearly there was um, an ideological struggle going on between Soviet communism and its empire of expansion uh, and the Free West. And, of course, that was fought out over the Cold War and some hot wars like the Vietnam War. But the basic ideas there... Um, are still with us in the intelligentsia as they were with the intelligentsia in, in Menzies' days. And again, you know, you just got to read some of his speeches to see him castigating the elites of the 50s and 60s, even some in the church, who Menzies called out as being complicit with communist ideology. Well, today, you know, the, the, the Marxists have worked out that people don't much like gulags and guns, but they are now using anti-discrimination legislation, which has been weaponized uh, against wrong, think and cancel culture uh, to enforce uh, the same ideas. And, and in some ways that's even more sinister, um, although I'm, I'm glad the gulags and the guns aren't part of it, but I think it's only a matter of time before more and more coercion comes and constrains us all as these woke cultural Marxist ideas gain more and more currency, particularly with the, the younger generation.
1: Yes, well, Menzies is one of the most misquoted politicians of our time, used by the left and the wet liberals in order to prop up their broad church politics. When that is, of course, not at all what Menzies meant when he, in his holistic writings. And you have to read the whole of his work to understand what he was getting at. Uh, but my uh, my point is, what do you think is going to happen to conservative politics in Australia if its leaders continue to kowtow to the fringe left of politics?
0: I think um, conservative politics is is in danger of being overwhelmed uh, by the left, Um, and and I would include in the left um, some in the libertarian right who who unwittingly go, you know, are probably the useful idiots for um, cultural Marxism. But because of the lack of engagement in the battle of ideas uh, from most politicians in the Liberals and and National Party, uh, we are being swept along, Um, and. We live in an advocacy system where ideas have to be spoken about, they have to be fought for, uh, truth has to be fought for, but uh, too often uh, politicians on the uh, centre-right fear what the media think, fear what the ABC think, fear what the elites think, and and don't want to have the fight. And in my observing of politics over 20 years and, and having worked for a, a short period as a staffer in the federal parliament um, with with, uh, the National Party and then as a lobbyist there for 10 years, uh, I would watch the Greens get up every morning, um, move notices of motion in the Senate. These are meaningless things. It's all symbolic, but it gave them the chance to advocate for their crazy ideas. Fast forward, you know, 15 or so years, and many of these ideas are now part of mainstream public policy with uh, the centre-right having capitulated. Uh, su- such as the attack on the coal industry, for instance. I remember Bob Brown calling for the end of coal, um, you know, 20 years ago and just thinking that's crazy. Well, well, now you've got the Liberal Party in New South Wales saying they're going to shut down all the coal-fired power stations and that they won't even replace them with gas-fired power because that's a fossil fuel. So you can see how, how far this has moved. That's just one area of policy by way of example where our people haven't engaged the battle of ideas and have been overwhelmed. And, and so I think the future is very bleak for conservative centre-right politics, uh, unless uh, a bit more spine is found. Um, it, it's, it's no good for our Prime Minister, as much as I really respect him, um, to try and pass these off as unimportant. Uh, they are very important and uh, they are affecting jobs They're affecting freedoms and they're affecting the the culture of this country and and it's being transformed before our eyes and it's being lost uh, almost without a fight from the centre right.
1: I also suspected it will lead to their loss at the uh, subsequent elections if they don't manage to find their spiritual centre. But let's move to your wonderful announcement that happened just recently in which you will be taking over from Fred Niles when he retires in November. This will leave you to take over the Christian Democratic Party. Um, Are you nervous about filling the shoes of the longest serving member of the New South Wales Parliament or you are just excited and eager to get going?
0: It's a mixture of both, Ellie. I'm obviously very excited. This is an opportunity that came out of the blue. I wasn't expecting it. It wasn't on my radar. Uh, They approached me just a few weeks ago. And um, it, it just seemed like a, a really good fit once we started talking about it and um, and and worked through the process. But, yes, I am nervous as well. Uh, it's very daunting. Um, politics is not for the faint-hearted. Uh, and particularly uh, someone who, uh, you know, approaches politics as, as a Christian um, and, and as a conservative, uh, it is a hostile environment. There's no doubt about that. Uh, Mark Latham is also... In the New South Wales Upper House as a as a conservative uh, as a as a great friend of Christians uh, by his own um, work and, and admission uh, and the sort of uh, vitriol he cops is is quite enormous um, and so I'm expecting it's not going to be easy but I'm certainly looking for the challenge looking forward to the challenge and looking forward to the platform that uh, Parliament gives uh, again to elevate our issues and um, my real hope with the position uh, when uh, when Fred does step down in in November. Uh, is that that'll give me an opportunity in the lead up to the 2023 election to really elevate some of um, the issues that uh, I'm passionate about that are really important to the Christian community, but also of value to the wider uh, public. Uh, and I'm really hoping that these ideas will will cut through and that um, uh, we'll, we'll get support for that. And it will give people hope that, voice, that more voices are uh, rising up to uh, combat the hard left which seems to have the megaphone at the moment
1: yes well if you want to uh, like politics for conservatives it's certainly not a safe space and if you want to see what's difficult try being a woman we get death threats every single week from the left they are absolutely incessant but uh, if you could achieve one thing in your first year of politics uh, what would that be like what do you really want to get done straight away
0: look um there's it's very hard to prioritize. Look, probably one of the key things um, is to just see this uh, insidious gender fluid ideology that's being inflicted upon our children to see that pushed back. Uh, I'd love to see that. Um, in, in you know, if, if I could achieve something in, 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 a, in a first year, to see that come to the public's consciousness in such a way that um, politicians will act to root it out of the curriculum. And um, Mark Latham, who's been in the New South Wales Upper House for a few years now, he's done some terrific work on this. Um, I've been campaigning on this for more than five years, uh, going back to my time at ACL. In fact, we were one of the first groups in Australia to raise this issue in the public's consciousness uh, in the lead-up to the same-sex marriage plebiscite. And uh, it has shocked me just how this issue has metastasized, um, how the... The hard left um, have been able to infiltrate this into pretty much every school curriculum in Australia, right down to early childhood education, teaching children that gender uh, has nothing to do with your biology. It's something that is in your mind, how you feel, and therefore you should alter your body accordingly, sometimes irreversibly. And I think this is incredibly damaging and harmful uh, to children. So that's something I'd love to see uh, really... Uh, dealt with, if that's something I could achieve in the first year, that would be awesome, Uh, obviously building on good work that's been done uh, before I arrive in the place.
1: Well, let's talk about that. Um, There is a fundamental difference between tolerance of ideas and lifestyles that differ from social norms and state-funded affirmation in which individuals are punished if they refuse to agree with different moral practices. And the school system, as you have correctly stated, has become a flashpoint for this discussion uh, due to teachers and politicians using the education system as a tool of political activism instead of a place of learning. Uh, I would argue that things like Mark Latham's parental rights bill is not about banning gender fluidity from school. It's asking what on earth these topics are doing in the curriculum in the first place.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. Um, as I look at Mark's bill, I think he is calling for uh, a ban on teaching children that their gender is fluid. He's not. I meant not... that
1: humorously. <laughs> I meant that. I meant that humorously. The idea that there even oh. has to be a bill about this seems to be completely absurd. It shouldn't even have to be stated.
0: Yeah, exactly. No, you're exactly right. It is just ridiculous that we're even having this discussion. But this, again, this goes to. The, the issue we're talking about before people don't even realise there's a culture war, but of course there is when you've got activists um, through the education department and um, in, in, in through teachers' unions insisting that children be taught um, this pseudo—it's not even science. It's—it's it's this. It, it's like a religion. It's some sort of transcendentalism that divorces you from your biological reality. And the fact that Mark Latham has to put forward a bill that uh, says we we should ban the teaching of gender fluid ideology to children and then also saying that parents should have the right to withdraw their children from any classes that they think might be of an ideological nature that they're not comfortable with that they feel are values that they want to teach in the home rather than school that's all perfectly reasonable but yesterday in the parliament or or not sure when this is going to um broadcast sorry if i've mucked up your timelines but um there were public hearings very recently and um trans activists uh, got up and yelled at Mark Latham, interrupted the the hearings, uh, yelled at him, called him a bigot, uh, and had to be escorted out by police. Uh, Now, this is just the intolerance. These people can't argue their case rationally. They have to yell and scream and call people names, and to to uphold their right uh, to have children indoctrinated in something which leads them along a path to chemical castration, surgical castration and bodily mutilation, particularly for young girls. This fight is about whether that sort of encouragement to minors uh, can continue to be pushed through our public schools. And uh, I think the overwhelming majority of parents uh, would not want that at all.
1: Well, just for our viewers who might not have read the bill themselves, I just have a short paragraph here to read to clarify what the bill actually stands for. Now, this is the opening paragraph of Mark Latham's parental rights bill. It says, to clarify that parents and not schools are primarily responsible for the development and formation of their children in relation to core values, such as ethical and moral standards, social and political values, and an understanding of personal identity, including in relation to gender and sexuality. Now, it goes on, Uh, to demand that that schools adopt transparency in what they are teaching their children and giving parents the opportunity to withdraw their children from non-essential courses that promote social ideology. Um, So how is this an act of harm or oppression as claimed by the activists? It seems more to me like this is restoring the previous system, which worked really well.
0: Exactly right. You've the answer to your question lies in a comment that uh, the activist April Holcomb um, said, uh, a, a quote that he or she, I'm not sure what gender, and I'm not trying to be smart or disrespectful to the individual, but this is the person who yelled out in the inquiry and interrupted it, uh, said that um, they were concerned that that uh, Mark Latham, Latham's bill assumed that children were the property of their parents and did not have individual rights. Now, that's the way that April Holcomb phrased it. But the reality is parents do have responsibility for their children. And what these activists are saying is they don't believe in the rights of parents at all uh, to guide their children, particularly when it comes to issues about chemical castration through puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and then surgical castration um, and then you know, mutilation, many young girls since this gender fluid epidemic uh, caught on uh, through social contagion uh, have had their breasts removed. But what April Holcomb is saying is that parents have no rights uh, to guide their children in these matters. Now, this is outrageous. And this is where the battle for ideas is the hottest. And that's why you have activists yelling in parliament trying to shut down an inquiry that's rationally looking at this, because the philosophical ideas are completely antithetical. You've got Mark Latham on one hand speaking of, on behalf of the ma- majority of parents saying parents should have the right to guide their children and, and have control in over what they're taught. Um, and, and that's consistent with um, international conventions uh, from the UN. But these activists don't believe in that. They believe that even minors are autonomous beings that should have separate rights quite apart from any wishes of their parents. Now, that that's a very radical concept and one which I think most parents well, it completely disempowers our parents and makes them irrelevant um, in terms of the raising their children. Of course, that's not the will of most parents. They, 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 you know, have the right to guide their parents at least to adulthood when the children can make up their own minds and make it their own decisions. But not under this brave new world that the radical left are promoting.
1: Well, it's not even a new idea. The the concept that children are property of the state and not the parents is. Basically, par for the core in Marxism where the state wants to take over the complete education and socialisation of kids So they worship the state and don't form familiar bonds and overthrow the eventual dictatorship. That's how it works It's basically rehashing last century's problematic political discord But uh, but activist groups are complaining in this case that the bill prohibits schools from referring students to what they call gender-affirming support uh, but that's the point, isn't it? That's what parents want. They want teachers uh, and the education system to stop interfering with the private and sexual lives of their children because it's simply it's not appropriate, one, and it's not their place. So their criticism of the bill seems to be what the general population actually desires the bill to achieve in the first place. Uh,
0: absolutely. and And the, the parents should have the say over what uh, help is sought for a child that might be experiencing confusion over their their gender. Uh, some parents might choose to go down an affirming path. Some might um, choose to go down the, you know, watch and wait path, which was the uh, clinical practice prior to uh, gender fluid ideology catching on in the culture in the last uh, five or ten years. But it's
1: very, it's very different, isn't it? The difference between social, like schools had counselling sessions for kids who were struggling. Well, that's fine. That's all well really and good if kids have a gap in their lives and they require a bit of additional help. But this is mutated into the school becoming the social support network for the child, and I think that's where they have overstepped the mark.
0: That they have, and and they incorrectly say that Latham's bill means that a child who, in their words, is trans or who I would say is is you know struggling with their gender identity with with their biological reality. That um, they can't be helped or supported. I mean, that's that's absolute rubbish. And and that's I'm I'm absolutely sure that's not the intent of Mark Latham's bill, and it's not my intent in in my critique of gender fluid ideology. Any student that is struggling or, or that has an issue deserves love and compassion and all the support in the world. But that's a long way from then teaching the rest of the class uh, an objective, you know. Fact in their minds uh, that gender is is on a spectrum and and is fluid and and that that I believe is a very harmful ideology and and so there's a lot of misrepresentation of Latham's intent and um, it's quite pernicious. Uh, these people are not honest in the way they characterise the bill. They try and make it sound like Latham's bill says that you know so-called trans kids don't exist. Well, you know. No one's going to say that, uh, that there might not be, you know, the occasional child struggling with their, their gender identity. Um, it, it's, it's not about that, but it is about uh, ensuring that parents uh, are in the best position to help their child and that the school is not indoctrinating the rest of the class uh, in a dangerous and harmful ideology that can lead to irreversible consequences.
1: Yes, it will also be a consideration that perhaps it's the activists themselves who are causing the most harm to the children who genuinely do have gender dysphoria, finding their very personal and private struggle with their gender suddenly the centre of social commentary and politics in the country. I mean, that's a lot of pressure for kids who are trying to grapple with their own ideas and their own personal understanding to find themselves pawns in a political game that's much larger than them.
0: Yeah, that's the tragedy of all this. I mean, gender dysphoria has has always been with us. It's been extremely rare. And if you talk to uh, teachers who have taught for for decades, they'll say um, it, they've hardly even seen it or never seen it. It's it's very rare. The last five or 10 years, it's um, developed into an epidemic. I think it's more contagious <laughs> than, well, it, it, it's a bit like the coronavirus in, in one sense in terms of its spread. But far more, it will harm more young people than the coronavirus ever will. And you've only got to look at the growing detransitioner movement of uh, people who have taken action on their body uh, and realised they've made a terrible mistake. Kira Bell is a high-profile case in the UK. Um, it's, it's very, very tragic, and um, I, I think you know this is a, a, a fad. It's an ideology that's being spread by political activists. And I do think uh, too many children, sadly, are becoming pawns in this and they are being caught up in a game of identity politics. And, and of course, when you're young and you're still forming your political values, your philosophies, um, you're very ripe for this sort of manipulation, and I think that's what we're seeing.
1: Well, just to finish off with the education system, I'll make one final point. Even since I was at school, the amount of money that we have been funneling into the education system appears to have made it worse. Uh, our education statistics have been plummeting on a global scale and we're now at the point where teachers and politicians have decided that it's almost too stressful to test kids, but I suspect that's because they don't want to find out how badly children are doing and reflect poorly on teachers. Do you think that perhaps we are giving too much money to education and that's all that's doing is funding activism instead of uh, facilitating old-fashioned learning, which is sadly lacking in our education system?
0: Yes, I I totally agree with your analysis. I think the rigour has gone out of it. Um, I I do think, and this is a broader discussion, that there's some kids that the education system is not well suited to that are better to get to go on a vocational path. We made a big mistake in the 1980s when Bob Hawke was prime minister and said everyone had to go to year 12. Um, That was a big mistake. We should always be looking for the pathway for uh, children who are more vocationally orientated to to direct them that way and, and others on on an academic path as to ability. And those that do go on the academic path uh, do need to be able to read textbooks, uh, withstand the pressure of exams. This sort of rigor is not bad. Uh, But at the moment, it's almost like education is every child gets a prize and um, there seems to be very little rigor in it. I've noticed that with my own kids' education. Let me me clarify
1: my point there for a second. I I understand your vocational training, but I'm talking about the academic kids who are leaving school and getting two degrees. And they can't even file things in alphabetical order so it's not that we've got some kids who aren't suited to education the basic system of education which they say their top students are leaving are leaving at a lower standard than they should be.
0: yeah look i, I totally agree with you there sorry I, I took you off on a little tangent there but um but I, i'm certainly agreeing with the substantive point um uh, it 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 worries me enormously. You talked um, earlier about the lack of knowledge of history by politicians. Um, th- this next generation has complete historical amnesia, and if you don't know where you've come from, uh, you won't know where you're going. And sadly, uh, that's where we are at this point in time. And we desperately need to recover our history and our uh, sense of self-worth as a culture, which has been badly beaten by decades of cultural Marxism that tells us we're no good. You combine that with a terrible education and you've you've lost all ability to um, to fight for your culture and to, to know where you stand. And so we're, we're in a very precarious position uh, at this point in history where I think we could go either way and it'll depend on um, the good work of people like yourself and other culture warriors. Hopefully I can play a part. I think the voices that are rising up now are the hope uh, to try and help uh, our society realise its error and see if we can pull things back from the brink.
1: Yeah, that's why I was so sad to lose all my books because you have to teach yourself these days. That my education was pointless as far as history and politics right. goes. Uh, but now that friendly part of the interview is over, I'm going to ask you some more challenging <laughs> questions. Because yeah, uh, I'm allowed to. Uh, religion and politics. Now, this is where you and I differ a little bit in the conservative spectrum, because obviously I'm a secular humanist and you are a Christian. So straight up difference there, and that's quite common in Australia for conservative politics to be divided this way, unlike America. Uh, So like a statistically significant portion of Australians, I like to keep my religion out of politics and vice versa. Now, that doesn't mean that I want to keep religious people out of politics, it just means that I don't, Indulge in quoting of scriptural gods in relation to policy or political discussions. Um, now, I also think it might be one of the reasons that the Australian Conservative Party didn't do as well as it should have because it was closely linked to religion rather than conservative politics in general. Um, and we also had the problem where, of course, Europe had a difficult relationship with politics and religion. At the end of the day, they decided to separate each other for the protection of both, and it worked out quite well, and Australia inherited that separation. Now, my question is, do you find that the open declaration of religion in your new party's name might hold it back from its voting potential? Not that that's a bad thing. I mean, there's a position for minor parties to be continuously in the the debate to hold the major parties to accord. It's just do you think it will have an impact on the growth of your party?
0: Yes, I think it will, and I think it does. Um, Now, it is a minor party that does... Uh, have a particular niche uh, in the upper house of uh, New South Wales. And and over 40 years, um, the Christian Democratic Party has held uh, two seats for most of that period. Uh, they did lose one seat at the last New South Wales election in 2019. So there has been a, a, a downward trend. Uh, my hope is that I can increase the vote, and that's an open question that will depend on um, how we go over the next 18 months or so. But, uh, yes, it, it is a niche party. But my hope would be, Ellie, that um, I can show that uh, just... Uh, that despite the fact that we are you know, unashamedly Christian and we're branded that way, that our policies are for the common good and now that people will have to make that judgement when they see um, more of how uh, the party operates with uh, myself involved and having more of a profile. Uh, but I think there will be some attraction uh, to people who are not necessarily uh, Christian people or religious but who like the values and can see that uh, the values are good for our society. I agree with you. I think uh, church and state should be separate. That is something which Christian people actually um, helped introduce uh, because of problems that had occurred in Europe. And but it's never meant to be um, the case that it should disbar people of any faith uh, from having a say in politics and participating fully as citizens in politics. It just means that the church doesn't run the state, and it also means that the state doesn't run the church. But more latterly separation of church and state has been used uh, mischievously by uh, secular leftists, I'm not saying yourself, but uh, certainly most most on the left, uh, to try and suggest that Christians shouldn't be able to bring their points of view into the public square. Um, and I'll just make one final point on, on this tangent is, is that everyone brings a value system uh, to politics, whether you're a secular humanist, as you are, Uh, There is a philosophical framework that you see the world in. You bring those values into politics. I see the world through uh, a Christian framework uh, and, and I see the ideas of the Bible and the Christian faith as having relevance to public policy. It doesn't mean I can mandate my religion. That's not my aim, but it means that I can argue for public policy that comes from an ethical framework informed by the Bible and informed by our Western Christian tradition.
1: Yes, I think well, that's why I clarified saying I don't think that it should prevent anybody of religion from entering politics. I think what most people are envisioning with religion and politics is that they don't want one person's God dictating the will of other people who may not follow it. That's more the general idea of religion and politics rather than a more spiritual framework, which I think is what your party inspires its politics by and its values, which is, of course, how everyone sees their politics.
0: Sadly, though, the left, um, that they will accuse people like me of trying to impose my morals my religion on them say say, on an issue like the definition of marriage in public policy I think marriage should be defined as um, you know monogamous relationship between two people of the opposite sex that's that's a public policy position but they, they think it should be defined in a different way but if I bring the definition that I think is best for human flourishing into the public square I'm accused of imposing my religion on them and yet if they bring their definition, well, that's fine. Well, I, I just think that's intellectually dishonest. They're coming from a particular framework. It's a philosophical framework. For some, it, it may not be religious religion, uh, but it's nonetheless a framework. Uh, but I, I just don't think it's fair to say just because you have a religious point of view, your ideas about public policy are invalid. And um, often religion is used as a trump card uh, to try and, and silence us. Um, the, the Greens... Many in the Greens have a quasi-religious framework. Bob Brown openly talks about Gaia. Um, it, it's, it's a form of pantheism. It's, it's a religion. He brings that into, or when he was in the parliament, he, he brought that into uh, his approach to public policy. No one said, Bob, you've got to leave Gaia at the door of the Senate when you go in. Um, he was fully accepted. Yet Christians come under, I think, unfair scrutiny because of their religious framework, uh, and there's a double standard there.
1: Well, let's talk about why that is in a second. Uh, a disagreement about whether religion belongs in politics is, of course, not the same as an open hatred of religion, which is what we see from particularly the Marxist left. Now, they do not hate all religion. They they often include things like Islam in their in their portfolios if they think it can help them win some migrant heavy seats. And so even though, of course, Islam is completely at odds to their liberal social order. But beside the point, um, what we see from the left is a hatred specifically of Christian religions. Now, this is left over from its Marxist roots in the last two centuries, in which Christianity was closely tied to the monarchy, and therefore it is socialism's eternal enemy. Mm -hmm. And not only is it the eternal, eternal enemy of socialism, we also see that uh, a religion like Christianity competes for affection with the Marxist worship of the state. Uh, so do you think activists today, especially young activists, have any idea why they are taught to hate Christianity? Or do you think they just copy what their lecturers tell them, that Christianity is bad? They've got no idea the historical uh, reasons behind Marxism's hatred of Christianity.
0: Yeah, I think you've summed it up really well, um, and you know we, we do forget that there is a competition for the affections of of humans, and the the reason Marxism hates Christianity is because it says that there is a God to which all humans are accountable, and it's not the state. And they like to think that the state or or that man, you know, humankind, uh, is the highest authority, um, whereas people of, of Christian faith and and, and Muslims would say there is a higher, there's uh, a transcendent being, i.e. God, to which we are accountable. Now, as Christians, we would say, well, that, that actually is an almighty safeguard because when humans think they are God and they're the highest authority, uh, that's when we often see terrible abuses. Now, I'm not trying to whitewash the fact there's been some terrible abuses in the name of the church and Christianity down through history, there has. But when Christianity operates the way, that Jesus of Nazareth intended it, uh, it, it, it is um, expressed in society uh, with a humility that acknowledges that uh, humans don't have all the wisdom and that there's something above us and someone to whom we are accountable that therefore checks uh, our behaviour and particularly our behaviour to our fellow humans. And um, Marxism wants to do away, hates the idea of God, hates the idea of accountability to the transcendent and uh, vies for our, Loyalty and affection, as you say, and and I think um, so many young people, again, because they don't, they no longer understand religion. Uh, they're not taught it anymore. Um, you know, a generation ago, at least, most people had been to Sunday school or had some form of of um, religious. I got education. out of
1: Sunday school. Just to be clear, um, I went yeah, one day was, and I didn't even make it half an hour, my mum had to come pick me up. She was like, "Oh, I know
0: you were very naughty, Ellie. You're probably asking too many hard questions."
1: <laughs> That's exactly what I did. I asked too many questions. <laughs>
0: well that's that's a shame because um that should be encouraged but uh but but yeah yeah, this is the problem so people they don't have any religious formation uh and so again they're they're being used as pawns uh for the state which wants them to uh be under its its control and its loyalty and um you know i think the, the the power grab that we've seen by politicians during the pandemic is um should be ringing big alarm bells because this is how statism and scientism operates, uh, where where man is the final authority and um, and we we all just go along worshipping the state and bowing to its wishes for the way our lives should be controlled.
1: Oh Well, this isn't even one of my questions, but when you talk about the state and collectivism, it amazes me how few university graduates who claim to love uh, collectivism and Marxism have no idea the funding principles of it and therefore have never read arguments like the Karl Popper argument against why communism fails and so have no idea the structures of which they're standing on and how dangerous the ideas they're demanding society adopt. But that's that's not even a question. Uh, the mm-hmm. hatred of Christians brings us to uh, the treatment of Scott Morrison and his wife, Jenny Morrison. Now, it barely a week goes past in which you don't see a trending hashtag on Twitter that is attacking Morrison's faith or the churches that may be associated with him. And uh, it interests me because you never see the left talk about the fact that the the Catholic faith is very much a part of the Labour Party and has been forever and is still a part of the Labour Party because I think that would intersect awkwardly with their other campaign against certain churches and things. So given the obvious hypocrisy in the way religion is treated by the online activists... How much of this hatred of Christianity do you think is just a mechanism to try and get rid of people holding political party on the opposite, uh, power on the opposite side to politics?
0: I think it's definitely that. I think it's the hard left trying to send a message to Christians that you're not welcome here, uh, to try and scare them away from being part of the political space. And, look, you look at the way Jenny Morrison has been treated by Magna Z- Zabanski most recently, uh, just held up as a... Um, an object of ridicule, insulting. You know, the, the, here she is photographed next to her husband signing a condolence book for Prince Philip. And and uh, Jenny Morrison is quite uh, rightly, you know, dressed in black. Um, nothing unusual about that. And somehow Magna makes some link to The Handmaiden's Tale, as if uh, Jenny is, you know, somehow being oppressed by Scott Morrison by the fact that she's dress like that while they're signing condolence. I mean, it's so ridiculous. It's not even funny. But it but what it does is it, it serves to show just how pernicious uh the left is and, and just how um, irrational their hatred is of Christians and and you know in, in this case they were trying to make Magda was trying to make a statement about a Christian man, i.e. Scott Morrison, and somehow suggest that he oppresses his wife by the fact that she was standing next to him dressed like that I mean it's so outrageous but I think it's got to be called out because this is dangerous stuff um, because if these ideas catch on um, I mean Magna's got a massive following um, it's you know it, it's really stigmatizing um, a section of of um, the population now we, we've seen what that does uh, down through history and it doesn't have to work.
1: Well, look, I read a lot of the comments about from Magda under her thread, the people who were agreeing with her. And it might interest you to know that probably about half of them, when you read through them, are actually being made by Christians. So these are Christians who are attacking Morrison and Jenny for being basically other Christians. And this is why I'm starting to suspect that the activists are trying to overplay the role of religion in Scott Morrison and Jenny Morrison in order to try and paint them as these overt religious figures, which they presume Australians will not want to vote for as, because of what I mentioned before, and using that as a way to take them out of power because they have nothing else to work with on that
0: front. Yeah, look, I, I think that's that's right, and and that's what makes it um, so scary. Uh, look, uh, rather I, I than...
1: I think we could both agree that Magda definitely bit off more than she could chew when she made that comment about Jenny Morris, because she copped a lot more flack than she did support. And uh, one thing that annoys me about conservatives is when they fight back and when they put the it back on the left about how terrible their comments are, the left have to walk it back and they often do and it makes me wonder why conservative politicians don't do that more often and don't come out and say, hang on a second, that is wrong and lay into the left like they should. I mean, what are they afraid of?
0: That's right. And, and they should. Um, look, I haven't seen much contrition on the part of Magna. I saw the highlights of her interview with Tracy Grimshaw on, on Channel 9, the current affair, but it seemed like Magna was doubling down. She was unrepentant. Um, but your, your point is right. Um, you know, the old adage is the best way to stand up to a bully is to stand up to a bull- the bullies. And too often the left are bullying conservatives. They're bullying people of Christian faith. Now, I believe in operating in the meekness of Christ, but that doesn't mean you're a pushover either. And I think there is a place for firmly but graciously stating your case and calling out untruths and calling out uh, these sort of examples where um, that they've overstretched the mark um, because Magna was way off the mark. I mean... I think the thing that Magna hates, and this goes back to Marxism, she hates the idea of heterosexual marriage. Uh, the Morrison's um, say what you like about them; they obviously have a wonderful, affectionate, mutually respectful marriage, and 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 they have both chosen different roles within that relationship. That's their choice. Jenny obviously has played a more nurturing role with their girls. Um, Scott, of course, has pursued a political career, and she has obviously supported in that. I think feminists like Magna deep down hate that idea and hate the fact that that's uh, a role model uh, that's presented to the nation uh, by virtue of the fact of of the people who are occupying um, that office at this time. I suspect that is part of the animus uh, that we see uh, through this latest episode of outpouring of hatred towards Scott and Jenny Morrison.
1: Oh, don't worry, Lyle. I'll bring the pitchforks because I have no such problem with that and I'm a farm girl so I've got plenty of bite to take to the left. Now, we're almost out of time but I just wanted to mention Greta Thunberg is back. She has returned to her little spotlight of uh, eco-fascism. And My question is now that she's no longer uh, operating under the protection of being basically a child star of the left, she's now basically an adult who has to operate in the adult sphere and be open to criticism, Do you think that she's going to remain a political activist on the left or will they ditch her and find another, you know, four-year-old to uh, promote the climate communism that they've got going on?
0: Look, uh, I'm sure they'll be on the lookout for uh, the next four-year-old or 16-year-old. But meanwhile, Greta uh, has been thrust again into the spotlight uh, as a poster child or poster adult. She's 18 now, um, doing a press conference with the World Health Organization and essentially running the Chinese Communist Party line that the virus um, somehow, you know, jumped from nature to humans. And then Greta's there linking it to, you know, tree clearing and, and uh, deforestation and, and saying, well, you know, the, the climate crisis is now linked to the virus crisis. And because we've done such a great job through <laughs> totalitarian means uh, of suppressing the virus, or at least trying to in, in some countries, um, that uh, this is the approach we should take with climate change. So I think it's very dangerous. Um, you know, you talk, we talked earlier about religion and politics. Uh, this is uh, the new secular religion, and secular is not the right word for it. It, it is a complete, you know, religion. So let's be
1: really clear. Marxism and collectivism is actually a political religion because it operates it inside the moral and ethical centres that are usually reserved for uh, religion rather than politics. So some some politics are actually religions as well as politics.
0: Yeah, and, and this is what Greta is bringing into the public discourse with her latest intervention. But I think it's it's frightening because uh, not only is it religious, it's it's obviously highly political, but it's playing into the hands of uh, the regime that is an existential threat to Australia, and that is the Chinese Communist Party. And I think it's very um, well. I was going to say naive of the World Health Organisation. I think they know exactly what they've, they're doing. They covered up. Uh, for the CCP right from the get-go when the virus uh, came out of Wuhan, probably out of uh, a lab there, uh, possibly as part of a weapons program. Um, but that's speculation, but there's a lot of intelligence to suggest that. Um, and, and here's Greta uh, running the lines of the CCP, again, um, in cahoots with the World Health Organisation, which is supposed to be a neutral United Nations body, Um this is quite sinister stuff. And again, I think it's got to be called out. Um, I, and, and this is why I'm very disappointed uh, in the federal government uh, since the Biden uh, presidency uh, that we've now moved further and further in the direction of, of the UN and, and um, the Paris Agreement. Well, we we're already in the Paris Agreement, but, but heading towards net zero. We are embracing uh, this new religion, lock, stock, and barrel. And uh, we've aligned ourselves with Greta and the UN, and I think it's deeply um, disturbing because the only regime it benefits is the CCP. They get strong using our coal, we get weak by not using our coal.
1: Well, let's not forget that the uh, WHO is hardly an impartial organisation, considering that the CCP funded Ted Ross's political party, and so he kind of owes them a bit of a favour when it comes to that. But uh, we're basically out of time, Lyle, so I'm going to ask you our final fun question that we always do on Curtain Call, which is if you could have dinner with anybody living or dead, who would it be and why?
0: I would um, love to have dinner with uh, William Wilberforce. Um, He was an 18th uh, and 19th century British parliamentarian who fought for the abolition of the slave trade He was a man of deep Christian faith. Um, He brought religion into politics, and as a result of bringing religion into politics, he brought in the idea that the black person uh, is our brother and should be treated as such. And with that philosophical basis informed by his religion, was successful eventually in seeing uh, the British Parliament abolish the slave trade And that led to the Royal Navy patrolling the world's oceans right up until the First World War, uh, looking for slave trading ships. Um, And uh, it banished the idea, at least in our consciousness, of um, slavery. And uh, so I'd love to have dinner with William Wilberforce. I've been to Clapham Common, where he lived, and seen some of the houses where he and his compatriots were. And uh, I would have loved to have gone to the Clapham mansions and uh, had dinner with him and his friends, as they discussed how they could abolish the slave trade over several decades.
1: Well, that is a wonderful answer, Lyle, and thank you so much for joining us this week on Curtain Call.
0: Thanks so much, Ellie.
1: Thank you for joining us on Curtain Call. We are hosted by The Good Source, the home of conservative and libertarian voices. Help us fight fake news by following us online. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube and all good podcasting services. If you enjoy this content, please like and subscribe.